our journey in, well, let me just pause and say this. We do this every so often just to remind ourselves of what we're about. Uh, we try to balance um, an environment in which kids can connect with the truth um, with an environment where they're trained. And so that's what we're about. That's why we do uh, the first Sunday of every month. We uh, leave the kid, kids in here with us because we want to train them to listen and take notes and uh, sing and pray and give and do all of those kinds of things. And then uh, the other Sundays, we send them out to connect with the truth in an, uh, in an environment which uh, is more kind of uh, kid-focused and kid-friendly. So that's, that's why, we, why we do it the way that we do. Uh, if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. It's a pretty big chunk today to bite off, and so I hope we can get through all of it. That's kind of what I'm hoping for. Um, we've been journeying through the book of 1 Timothy a couple of more weeks here before we uh, wrap this book up. Uh, as we get started, um, just in light of the things that we're going to read today, let's think for just a second about this. Does anybody have a particularly favorite kind of literature that you like to read? How many, how many of you are poet people, poetry people? Nobody's owning that anyway. One, James Mills is a poetry person. How many of you like fiction? Uh, <laughs> fiction, fiction, okay, nonfiction, history, history, okay, yeah, uh, uh, is there another kind? I'm just trying to come up with them on the fly here. Uh, sci-fi, sci-fi. Anybody sci-fi? There, there are, there are uh, you know, different types of, of genre, uh, uh, genres of literature and stuff people enjoy and engage in. And one of the great things about uh, uh, reading and reading a lot is, you know, you kind of figure out um, what you like. Some stuff uh, you remember in school and that kind of thing. Some stuff you needed to read even though you didn't necessarily want to, but it was good for you to. Um, today, uh, we've got a little bit of that. We're going to kind of encounter three different, if you will, genres in this section in 1 Timothy 5. We're going to have a command, and a command is when God comes to us and he says, hey, listen, this is what you need to do. Well, I'm not sure I like to do that. Don't care. This is what you need to do. Well, I'm not sure how to best apply that. Don't care. This is what you need. God is giving us a command. And then secondly, he's going to give us a principle a principle being a thing that we extract, if you will, from a specific situation. We extract the principle, and then we can learn to apply it over multiple um, other situations. And then he's going to give us a lesson. Uh, how many of you have learned lessons from stories that you've been told before? Yes, everybody? He's going to tell a little story here at the end, uh, a little parable here about an ox, and uh, we're going to learn some. That's kind of what we're after, a command, a principle, and a lesson. Uh, and so we're going to start here in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Now, this is important for Timothy. He's a younger pastor. Uh, Paul's writing to him, and he's trying to remind him, this is how you treat people in the house of God. Because the church of God is a family, right? Then you want to treat people around you as family members. Here he starts with, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him. Um, and uh, as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters. And then he puts this important thing, in all purity. So the command for the church family, and the title of the sermon today is Family Matters. And so because family does matter and our church family matters, how do we relate to one another under this command? The command is simply this, to urge and to exhort fittingly. So you've got a younger pastor speaking to an older person, and Paul looks at that younger pastor and says, don't go after them like that. Uh, they are not a nail and you are not a hammer. Don't do that. 
uh, instead, uh, urge and exhort them fittingly. Speak to them as you would a father. The word that he uses there, um, command, or excuse me, uh, encourage in verse one there uh, is a word, and it's got kind of a, a broad range, broad uh, lexical range. It can mean a lot. Probably best in this situation, urge and exhort. So I find myself at times sitting down with an older man and looking at him going, come on. Finish well. In these moments, finish well. In these situations, finish well. You want to cheer them on. You want to leave a legacy. Urge them. Exhort them as a father. And then he says to, um, uh, to when you relate to the older women, do so as mothers. And so a couple of, maybe a couple of months ago, had a conversation with one of our older ladies, and I'm saying, man, we need you. Please step into uh, this kind of mentoring role. Look down a generation and look for people to step up and say, hey, listen, I, I want to help you. I want to encourage you. I'm cheering you on. And I'm saying this to this older lady, trying to, as a spiritual mother, if you will, urge them, exhort them into this. And to younger uh, men as brothers, come on, man. Come on, we're not going to put up with this, right? Come on, let's go. And to younger sisters, excuse me, and to, uh, to the younger women as sisters in all purity, to relate to them differently um, but because, you know, male and female, that kind of thing. But say, come on, man, we can do this. We, we need more than, than what's being brought to the table here. Come on, we can do this. So urge and exhort people fittingly. Uh, how, how you speak um, to those around you often determines whether or not you get the opportunity to speak to them the next time around. That's true in any leadership situation. For those of you in any sort of leadership situation, it's true. How you speak, how you speak to those around you often determines if you can speak to them the next time. In other words, just because you have the right to say something doesn't mean you have the right to be heard. Further, if you are younger, it is so important to get this. And if you have younger people in your life, it's also really important to get this. Um, uh, positional authority and relational authority are two very different things. And people respond much better these days, especially anybody who's 40 and younger, respond much better these days to these kind of relational authority, the authority that somebody has on the basis of relationship, not on the basis of position, of a title that they have. So um, urge and exhort fittingly. And so I want to get, try not to riff on this too much. Uh, but I just, I can't get past this. I want to try to practice what I'm preaching here, okay? Uh, because, if you didn't know, we're in an election season. Anybody know that? Okay. So I want to urge and exhort you fittingly and say this. Um, let's, I, and I, boy, wading into waters here, just hear me out. Let's be people, not of fear, but of faith. Uh, because so much of the rhetoric around both parties and whether we should vote for a third or write-in candidate or whatever your plan is, um, so much of the rhetoric is about fear. Well, if she becomes it, then this is going to... If he becomes it, then this is going to happen. Well, if you don't vote for... It's just fear, 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 fear. And I'm saying, listen, God's not giving us a spirit of fear. That's the very next page in my Bible. 2 Timothy 1.7. He's not giving us a spirit of fear. He is not. So let's be people not of fear, but of faith. Uh, let's concentrate mostly on the kingdom, not on the republic. Our allegiance is to one far longer than it is to the other. A thousand years from now, 
our allegiance will still be to the kingdom of God. Okay? Um, so let's concentrate on the kingdom, uh, not on the republic. Let's concentrate not on now, but then. What I mean by that is, you know, yes, let's think about the future and the future of their country and let's pray and all these kinds of things. Let's also think about standing before Jesus one day and giving an account for how we related to one another during this season. How we did end up voting and on and on and on. Let's think about not now. Let's focus, if you will, not just on now, but also on then. And lastly, let's think not about me, but about them. And when I think about them, I'm thinking about, um, you know, kids, the generations to come. Because long, long after um, this election season's done, and the next most important election of our entire lives has come around again, um, our kids will have learned from our examples. So what kind of legacy do you want to leave them? One of fear where they're scared? Or one of saying, hey, listen, what, what if we lived our lives in such a way in this season? And I'm trying to urge and exhort you fittingly. Hear me this on this. Um, what if we lived our lives in such a way this season that our kids grew up thinking more about faith than fear, more about a kingdom than a republic, and more about then and not so much about now? What if, what if we lived our lives like that? Wouldn't that be good? So let's be those kind of people. Let's be those kind of people, okay? Urge and exhort fittingly. That's the command. When we relate to one another in the church family, we um, look up and we treat with respect to the older generations. We look um, down the generations, not with, not with some kind of disdain, but instead, hey, listen, we, we need to bring you along here. Uh, and we treat them as brothers and sisters. We treat them as mothers and fathers, okay? Uh, and again, just remember, positional authority carries less weight than relational authority. And that's especially true if you're longer. That's number one, a command. Secondly, this, this whole idea of a principle. Um, he, the principle is outlaid in a couple of different places here. It's in verse 3 and then again in verse 16. So let's read those two verses because they kind of make the, uh, they kind of frame out this passage. Number uh, Verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. And then down in verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Here's the principle. The principle goes something like this, that the church should help care for those who have no one to care for them. The church should help care for those who have no one to care for them. Part of our family that matters is folks who um, can't care for themselves. They don't have people around them to care for them. So the principle is the church then steps in and helps care for those who actually need it. Um, Paul has to apply this principle in Ephesus because of some of the things going on. And so let's read down a little bit about some of these things going on. Uh, some of it's a little confusing and it's very localized in its context, but let's go ahead and read it. Verse 4. Uh, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. We'll talk, pick that up in just a second. Verse 5. She, uh, who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God. 
and continues in supplications and prayers day and night. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So apparently, let's just pause here. Apparently, there were some folks who were, um, you know, as widows who were doing some um, praying and, you know, encouraging the church and that kind of thing. And then there were some who were just being self-indulgent, kind of mooching off everybody else. That's, that's not a good thing, Paul says. Verse 7, command these things as well so that they may be um, without, excuse me, without reproach. And, and look at this in verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than the unbeliever. Oh, now you don't put that one on a coffee cup, do you? You don't. But let's be clear here, and we'll Again, pick this up in just a second. The church should help care for those who need it, right? For those who need it. And so Paul's saying, hey, if, you've got a, if you're in a situation where you have need, you've got people around you who can help, let them help first. That's what he's saying. Continuing on, verse 9. Uh, let a widow be enrolled on this kind of list uh, uh, to, take, to be taken care of. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, has devoted herself to every good work. Just pause right there. He's talking about a specific list. He's talking about a specific context. And I, and I think um, he's contrasting them uh, with some of the other stuff that's going on in the church. And that's what he takes up next. Verse 11. But refuse to enroll younger widows. So if you're 59, I'm sorry. No, no. no. But refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. And what? Why is he so weird here? Here. Again, local context, in Ephesus, the church, uh, this is what's happening. There, uh, there's kind of two temptations that he addresses. One temptation is for younger widows was to run off to marriage. Uh, there, meaning, okay, in those days, there was no independence. Uh, there was no kind of other source of income. Uh, there was no social security net um, to, to catch them. They relied on marriage. And so anyone, anyone who would take care of a younger widow would be deemed marriage material. Can you see how that would get yourself off in a wreck in a hurry? Anybody ever seen someone get married and you thought to yourself, dude, that's a bad play right there. And then what happened? It often ended in an absolute wreck, right? And so, indeed, uh, man, you just you think about um, the temptation to run off to marriage. If you're in here and you're single, please, 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 don't run off to marriage. It's not, uh, it is not your savior. So, anyone who would take care of a younger widow would be deemed marriage material. And then, if you got married, you were expected as a wife to take on the religion of your husband. So if you married someone who wasn't a believer, guess what? You were expected to take on their religion. And you would have denied, as Paul says, this former faith. You would have walked away from Jesus in that. So that, that's kind of the first temptation, just to run to marriage. And again, we've seen that before, have you not? In your world, in your life, where people have run to marriage as if it were some sort of functional savior. It doesn't end very well. But verse 13. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So first temptation was to run to marriage. Second temptation was to idleness. Idleness, just kind of not doing much. They weren't freeloading as much uh, like the men. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul looks at the men. He's like, hey, man, you're freeloading. Don't do that. 
You're sitting around mooching off. Every, don't do that. Don't do that. It's just they, they weren't doing the things that they were supposed to be doing. So Paul's solution, verse 14, so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage your household, give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed away from Satan. Paul's solution was, hey, get married, have some kids, manage your house, grow old with somebody, a Christian person. Um, people hear this and they say, man, this is, this is Paul hating on women again. You know, here he is again coming you know, just get married, that kind of thing. Again, because there was no social safety net, because there was no source of independent income, because there was, I mean, there was, it's just a radically different culture. Um, this is actually the best thing for them is to step into a positive Christian relationship and then, and then let their family uh, be, be that covering for them. Furthermore, um, if you've got uh, ladies in this case, and there were men in other cases, uh, but if you've got ladies in this case who are, um, you know, uh, at once, uh, at one point they claim Christianity, but then they run off and get married and then claim a different religion, what does that say about the gospel? It's not really worth following. So Paul's not only looking out for their welfare, but he's also concerned about the message of the gospel. It's not chauvinism. It's not misogynistic. It really is trying to make sure that they're cared for inside the context of a Christian marriage, and it is trying to do, doing its best to protect the gospel. Okay, so that's kind of principle number one. The church should t help care for those who have no one to care for them. Principle number two, uh, skip back to verse four. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And then skip down again to verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own relatives and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Principle, this is the second principle. T taking care of family is holy work. It is holy work. He says very clearly in verse 4, this is pleasing in the sight of God. It's holy work, folks. Now, for those of you who are caring for aged parents, it's hard work, is it not? Man, it is very difficult, and it is difficult emotionally because you're having to engage with things and do things and work with things and make decisions that, you know, previously you haven't had to make, and you do it for someone who used to make those decisions for you. I mean, it is hard work, but it is holy work. It is difficult when you're watching um, decline, when you're watching, uh, you know, wh whatever is going on in that kind of realm. You're looking at this going, but it is holy work. I say that to encourage you towards this. To say, stay at it. It's holy work. Stay at it. It's holy work. It's holy work. And it makes the gospel look so good because you've got something else to live for. You've got some, you're, you're thinking about not just this life right here and right now in front of you. And you know, you could choose a life of ease, but instead you're choosing the hard and holy work of caring for someone who needs to be cared for in that moment. Boy, that makes the gospel message real in so many people's lives. And if you deny that, I mean, if you don't do that, if you don't care for it, what does he say in verse 8? You're worse than the pagans. I, sitting one time in a situation, two folks kind of going at it here, and uh, I just finally looked at the guy and I said, hey, listen, based on your deceit and stuff, here's what the Bible says about you. Um, you're deceiving your family. You're not taking care of them. You have all these practices that are terrible. Listen, you're worse than the pagans. He said, I'm a blood-bought believer of Jesus. I don't receive that. I don't care if you receive it. This is what the Bible says about you. You're worse than the pagans. You can claim all the things you want to. 
You're worse than the pagans. You're worse than the unbelievers if you don't take care of your family. So listen to me. If you're in that season of life where it is hard and holy work, where it is a difficult task to keep persevering, um, to, to get up one more time, to do the things that are so difficult to do, it is pleasing in the sight of God. And I just want for us as a church family to look at one another and cheer one another on. Practically, where does this play out? Well, sometimes, you know, some, somebody may need a break. You need to go sit with somebody. Sometimes they can't get their yard mode. And you know what we need to do? Yeah, I mean, that's what we need to do, right? Uh, sometimes uh, they don't have the opportunity because of their schedule to go get the oil changed. And guess what? We can figure out how to get the oil changed or the tires rotated or a hundred other practical needs that get, uh, you know, you go to the store, you buy a little bit of extra, you make the casserole that everybody loves anyway, and you just go ahead and make an extra portion of the casserole. I mean, like we could do this a hundred different ways, church family, but we need to do it. But we need to do it. It's hard and holy work when people are taking care of family members, particularly those uh, who are in the older stages of life, those latter stages of life. But uh, those of you who are in the middle of it, it's hard work, it's holy work, but it is pleasing in God's sight. And it's up to us as a church family to buoy them, to cheer them on. Those are the principles. Again, you extract that and then you... Look at uh, where where can I apply these? Uh, where can I apply these in life? Then the lesson, verse seventeen. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Verse eighteen. For the scripture says, "You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain." And the laborer deserves his wages. Uh, verse 19, don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of excuse me, two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all uh, so that they may rest, uh, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. Let's just pause right there. Uh, what's the lesson? The, the lesson is this, that laborers deserve their wages. You see that in verse 18. He's, um, he quotes Jesus there. And then um, previously, he quoted a, a passage from the Old Testament, don't muzzle an ox while he's treading out grain. And you think to yourself, huh? What's he doing? He's taking this and he's, he's saying, oh, this is a good lesson for us to, to apply. And so how does he specifically apply it to this young pastor and to those who are working there? Laborers deserve their wages in the church and in our church family, elders, those who function in pastoral roles, they can get paid for ministry. That, that's, that's what it is. That's what he talks about when he says in verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And so, uh, you know, as far as our church family goes, you know, we set up a budget and we have a personnel budget and all this kind of stuff uh, to pay those of us who work here um, uh, and, and work at these things that preaching and teaching. Elders can get paid for ministry. That that's the thing. And then he and then he says he doesn't just stop with pay though. It's not just about a monetary thing. Verse nineteen. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he says to Timothy. Okay, leverage deserve their wages, but be careful, be careful here. Um, they take fire because they're in leadership. Anybody who, 
How many of you function in some sort of leadership capacity in your job or, or elsewhere? Anybody with me on that? How many of you have also had conflict because you are in leadership and it comes up the chain towards you? That's exactly right. You take fire uh, because you're in leadership. That, that's just part of it. When you sign up for that particular role, when you sign up for that particular job, th that's just part of it. And so uh, Paul says here, listen, you've got in an enemy outside, a spiritual enemy, Satan. You've got sometimes enemies inside who want to uh, you know, take somebody down. He says, so listen, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Let there be an established testimony that this indeed is what happened. That this is indeed what happened. So um, this is, th this kind of respect, if you will, is one of the wages that they deserve. Does that make sense? And then, then he goes on because he doesn't let them off. Look at verse uh, 20. As for those who persist in sin, do what? Let them off the hook, right? Sweep it under the rug, right? Put them on TV, let them make an apology, and everything's fine, right? What's it say? Rebuke them. And not just rebuke them. Sit them down over lunch. Hey, listen, I'm rebuking you because... What's it say? Rebuke them where? In the presence of all. Stand them up in front and go, this is sin. This is bad. You ought not be doing that. It is a moment of, if you will, kind of public shaming to say no and no and no. This is not Christian. This is not leadership. This is not... Rebuke them. He says, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Now, it should, it, man, if they're going to do that to the leadership, you know, like, ooh, it should uh, reverberate in the church, right? The, that kind of holiness should reverberate in the church, and that's a good thing. And then just to add, uh, take on the seriousness of this one more time, verse 21, to ratchet it up one more notch, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the angels, I'm not sure who else he missed, but he got everybody out there. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. He may be your friend. If he deserves rebuke, rebuke him. He may be your enemy. If he deserves grace, give him grace. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus, the head of the church, and of the angels, do these things. That's serious stuff. That's serious stuff. Be careful how you treat them. It is one of the wages, if you will, that they deserve, but if they do not, if they do not uh, turn from sin, if they persist in their sin, rebuke them. Now, he doesn't stop there. Uh, you've got this, in my Bible, it's in parentheses. Let's go ahead and read it, verse 23. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. That doesn't fit anywhere in the context of what he's saying here. It's almost like Paul's like, anybody ever had that moment where you're like, da -da 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 -da, and you're typing an email, you're like, oh yeah, and then you keep going with your thought? This is exactly what Paul seems to be doing. He's like, in, in my mind, in my mind, this is how this goes. Paul's writing, and he's like, yeah, you know, uh, when you have leadership things, sometimes you get a like sick feeling, ulcer, whatever. Oh, yeah, don't, don't drink only water. Take some wine, too. You know, and then he kind of moves on. Like in, it's almost like writing a prescription of some sort. Uh, verse 24. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, back, backing up here. Uh, verse 22, I, I missed this one. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. He's saying be careful here. Uh, don't lay hands on someone too hastily. 
laying hands on this is a sign of commissioning or a sign of leadership. He's saying because um, leaders matter in the church and in politics and a hundred other places in the world, um, leaders matter. So don't lay hands on someone too hastily. Don't put someone in leadership too quickly. That's what he's saying here. Um, and then he has that comment about, you know, the wine in the stomach thing. Verse 24, uh, th- the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not, are not, cannot remain hidden. Why be slow? Why do you not lay hands on someone too quickly? Why do you not give someone leadership responsibilities too quickly? Why? Because it takes a while for fruit to develop, right? You go out, you plant an apple seed, nurture it, water it, put it from the pot to the little, it starts growing from the pot to the, uh, the bigger pot and the bigger pot to the bigger pot and then the bigger pot to the ground, right? But at what point do you expect an apple tree? Not tomorrow, right? I mean, not even a week from now. A month from now? No, not really. At what point after you plant the tree? I mean, you may have to wait years for this. And this is what he's saying. You don't exalt someone to leadership just because they've got a great personality or a good story or, or are able to connect with people or whatever. What do you do? You look, don't lay hands on someone. Don't, don't be hasty in this. Why? Because, verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous. You can see them going before them to judgment. They tweet about it, and they put it on Facebook, and they brag about it, all these kinds of things. But the sins of others appear later, so you got to watch their lives. So also, good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not, they're, they're acting and just doing, and they don't care who's seeing, and they do a lot of it in secret. Even those that are not cannot remain hidden. What does he mean here? There is no such thing as a secret sin, and there is no such thing as an unseen good deed. And if we lay hands on someone too hastily, if we exalt someone to leadership too hastily, in whatever realm that may be, what we miss, what we miss here is the lesson of it takes time for fruit to develop on the tree. And because it takes time, we live in this kind of microwave society, but because it takes time for the fruit to develop, what we don't want to do, we we want to be careful. We want to be careful. Leadership matters. Church family, listen, leadership's going to matter more than ever in these days uh, to come. Why? Because the society keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And it, well, but we're guaranteed certain rights. Here, here's the thing. I get that. You're right. Constitution says all sorts of things, but the right that we're guaranteed according to the Bible is things like persecution. Second Timothy 2, uh, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We're not guaranteed ease and comfort, folks. So our moral clarity and our moral leadership as, the, as the, the, the body of Christ, as the family of God, as the voice of Jesus on the earth. That's going to matter. So we need to be careful in how we take on and, and uh, exalt leadership. We've got to be careful with that. So here's what I want to do. I want to take a minute and I want to pray. I want to give ourselves to uh, a few minutes to pray for our country. Give ourselves a few minutes mostly to pray for the church because... The gospel is the hope of the nations, folks. 
Not just our nation, the nations. So let's take a minute and let's pray.